Titus chapter 3. We will go to 1 Peter after Titus. So again, as we are, um, as we are working through the New Testament, we are working through it chronologically. So it's going to be a little bit out of discord with the way that the New Testament is laid out because the New Testament is laid out by author and by length. It is not laid out in order, unfortunately. Um, but that's, that's okay. It, uh, it's something we work with and something we work around as best as we can when we go through something like this. But I'll remind you of why I teach this class that way. Because um, the way that Jesus described at his ascension that he was going to be sending the Spirit into the world is that this was going to be a gradual effect that, that starts at Jerusalem, which we witnessed in Acts chapter 2, and it goes to Judea, which we witnessed in Acts chapter 8, and Samaria, which we witnessed uh, further in Acts chapter, I want to say 13, and I'm pulling that off the top of my head, and then the uttermost parts of the world, which kind of starts in Acts chapter 18, uh, with the Holy Spirit going to Ephesus and further and further beyond. And obviously the difficulties that the Jerusalem church had with the reality that the church was becoming Gentile, and so they had to understand how is it that we uh, affect them to the gospel? Is it that we teach them that they must be circumcised, or is it that we realize that the Holy Spirit comes upon them, same way as us, in their uncircumcised state, and not with the law of Moses, how are we to understand this? And the understanding was that the gospel was going to go out in accordance with the Spirit of God. And this is a gradual thing that happened, and so we see um, a significant number of miracles every single time there is a new boundary pushed by the Spirit of God. And so we see uh, enormous things happening in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. I mean, literally, the 120 people that were in the uh, that were in the upper room come out, and the words that they say they understand, and then everyone hears them in their own native tongue. That's that is very unique. That is something that is bizarre. That is something that we do not see on the regular. That is something the Spirit of God explicitly was doing on that day for very specific purposes, as we discussed. But the same thing happens when Cornelius by Peter is evangelized, and they receive the Holy Spirit in the same way, and they start speaking. Now we have Gentiles speaking in tongues in a way that now Peter can hear Cornelius speak in his own tongue. A Roman centurion whose, whose native language is Latin, and speaks in his native tongue, and then Peter hears him in most likely Aramaic. Incredible. And Peter is standing there going, this is obvious indication that the Spirit of God is moving past Jerusalem. How are we to make sense of this? And in fact, it is the main story that he tells at the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15 for that exact purpose. He says, the Spirit of God comes circumcised or not on the Gentiles. It is of no effect. It is almost as if the gospel itself is being prepped to enter into the Gentile world in a way that nobody foresaw. Paul writes about this, and we see it throughout the scriptures, is that there was what's called the mystery of the salvation of the Gentiles. It is something that God did not reveal to his people in the Old Testament. You read the 39 books of the Old Testament, you do not come out with the expectation that, one, Messiah will be put to death on a cross raise again, and the salvation of the Gentiles will continue on for thousands of years. You will not pull that out of the Old Testament by design. After it starts happening, the apostles are able to look back to the Old Testament and go, 
oh, there's been pictures of this everywhere. There's been expressions of this all over the place. What is it that the Spirit of God is doing? It would be easy for us to imagine that the only thing that the Spirit of God was doing was interested in the salvation of people, and that is it. Almost as if the salvation of people is expressed towards them, and then they are left to their own devices. In fact, so much so is the salvation expressed by the grace of God that we even have Paul writing to the, book, uh, to the Romans and saying Christ is the end of the law for all who believe. What do we do with that? Does it mean God doesn't care about rules anymore? God doesn't care about morality or sin or any such thing? Paul includes clarifiers on that and says, it is not as though we are expressing that you may sin, that grace may abound. No, that is slander. That's not the gospel at all. The Spirit of God in saving us does not leave us to our sin. He sanctifies us. And the reason why I teach this class in chronological format is because the same pattern that happens in Christians' life is the same pattern of revelation that happens through the New Testament. Salvation is given. Salvation is spread abroad. Salvation is preached. You are seeing that it is consistent not only with the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the apostles, but also the ministry of the prophets all the way back to the patriarchs, all the way back to the garden. Then what? God does not leave us to our own devices. He does not just say, you are saved from your sins there, end of story. Now go live as you please. And then one day when you die, all will be well and you'll go to heaven. That's not the gospel. The Spirit of God is not finished with us. What the law was sent to do to the people who feared the Lord in the Old Testament, the Spirit has come to actually do in the lives of those who trust in Christ. In the Old Testament, you trust in the Lord. You do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths, right? right? How does he direct your paths? He gave his law. He gave his law as a teacher until the fullness of time should come. And when the fullness of time has come, Christ becomes the end of the law. Not because the law is bad, not because the law is inconsistent, no, but because the law was insufficient through our weakness to bring about righteousness. I say to you, do not covet. Does that give you the power not to covet? I say to you, do not steal. Does that give you the ability to cease from all stealing? I say, don't murder. Does that stop you from hatred? It doesn't come with the power, nor does it assume the power to fulfill the law. And this is why we say the law was sent primarily as a mirror to show us who God is and by comparison, excuse me, by contrast, who we are. We are not God. We see ourselves as ungodly. The only type of people that God saves, by the way, are the ungodly. This, this is what the New Testament is hammering home over and over and over again. If you come to the law and you find that I'm not actually wanting for much. I, the law is good. For, I got it. I got it covered. Great. Jesus isn't here to save you. You don't even want salvation. Why would he be here to save you? This is what Jesus says. I'm the great physician. Those who are well don't need a physician. Only those who are sick. Those who are doing fine in accordance with the law by their own reckoning will not even be looking for a savior. They've got it figured out. They're like the Pharisee who's standing outside the temple going, thank God, he didn't make me like sinners. He's made me good. I tithe. I pray. 
I fast, and all these things, all these things I'm very grateful to God for, for not making me like this tax collector over here. But what does the law show the tax collector? Hopelessness. What does he say? God be merciful to me, a sinner. That's it. It's the only thing he prayed. He refused to even look up to heaven because he didn't count himself worthy to even look at the sky. What did Jesus say about that? It's in Luke 18. What did Jesus say about that? Yeah, say it louder. Yeah. Yeah, only the one went home justified. One went home justified in his own mind. The other one went home justified by the Lord. Why? Not for anything good he had done. But because he had cast himself on the mercy of God and said, Be merciful to me, a sinner. There in his confession. There in his repentance. There in his faith. And all through the New Testament, we have this revealed. This is the mode of salvation. This is the way it comes to people. But once it comes to us, God doesn't say, that's good enough, let's stay there. Nothing more. No. Now that Christ is the end of the law, for all who believe, in accordance with the book of Romans, the Spirit of God is given to our hearts. Not so that we can just have confidence, but so that God's law might be written on our hearts. That he might actually take out of our chest a heart of stone and give us instead a heart of flesh and on it write the law of God. That we may love to follow the commands of Christ. Not so that we can present ourselves faultless before the throne of grace, no. But so that we can walk in accordance with that which God has now given us a desire to walk. This is seen plainly in the latter parts of the New Testament. Because as it is expressed to us, we see in the book of Titus, Paul, from prison, about to be beheaded in Rome, is writing to one of the church planters, for lack of a better term, that serves in the island of Crete. Titus is a young man, follower of the Lord, who is tasked with the responsibility of proclaiming the gospel and establishing leadership for new churches throughout the island of Crete. Paul reminds him, he says in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, remind them. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authority, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Stop there for a second. If evangelism and fellowship, which are really two halves of the same coin, just to different people, if evangelism and fellowship are not done from a state of humility, they're never done well. Evangelism is not, I fixed my life, now you should follow me. Evangelism is not, I have found everything and I am satisfied with everything. I have purpose in my life, happiness, money, wealth, prosperity. Live like I do and you will know the same prosperity, happiness, health, and wealth. That's not the gospel. The gospel never focuses on the messenger. The gospel focuses on on the message, 
Christ himself, suffering, crucified, dead, buried, risen again, coming again. The effects that that has on a Christian is that they do not become proud in their preaching. They do not look at evangelism as a way to get good marks. They do not look at it as a way to tally up the amount of souls that you are responsible for. You aren't responsible even for your own. The message of the gospel and the message of the cross is preached no matter because the outcome is up to the Lord, not to the messenger. And sometimes the messengers get killed. That's the way of an evil world. So, but what Paul is reminding Titus is we have a responsibility as Christians to live submissively to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. Now here, Paul is not expressing the law, so-called. What he is doing is he expressing the realities of the Christian life. This is what the Spirit of God is driving us towards. In case there's any doubt, let's see what he says. What we used to do as foolish, disobedient, led astray slaves, passing our days in malice and envy and hated by others and hating one another, verse 4, Titus chapter 3, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, don't ever look at your past life and go, you know what, I, I kind of understand why God saved someone like me. Makes sense, right? I was risen in church. I, I did some good works. I never really did anything legal. And yeah, makes sense that God saved me. No. The attitude of the one sharing the gospel is, there was nothing good in me. No works done by me in righteousness for why God saved us. What does he say verse 5? He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. God brought us to life when we were dead in trespasses and sins. And if you talk to a lot of Christians in certain circles, they will almost speak as though that was the end of God's work. God brought us to life. Now it's up to us to live everything just right. As though coming to life somehow makes us capable now of doing the law. No. No. If that were the case, the Spirit of God would be completely unnecessary to the Christian life. But the Spirit of God is completely necessary for the Christian life because we aren't capable of living it. What does he say? It is not only by the washing of regeneration that God's grace has worked in us. It is not just the salvation at one point in the past that God has given us, this kind of holy fire insurance that people speak of. No, there is a renewal of the Holy Spirit. To look at the Christian life as though the only thing about it that is supernatural is our salvation and that was it, is to look at a newborn baby and say, they're full grown. Everything's good. They don't need bottles. They don't need care. They don't need love or concern, devotion. No, they don't need anything at all, right? They're alive. That's the only thing that we need, right? Adults are alive. Babies are alive. Everything's good. And the way Paul talks about this is, is that that's not how anything works. That's not how the natural world works. That's not how the supernatural world works. And as Christians, 
When we come to salvation, we are described as newborn babies for a reason. We are not capable of growing ourselves up. We are not capable of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Who is the one that works that miracle in us? It is the Holy Spirit himself, right? Because the same thing that gives life is the same thing that preserves life, and that is the supernatural workings of the Holy Spirit. He is the life giver, both before salvation to bring us to salvation and in salvation to renew our hearts, that we may love the things that God loves. When you look back to the time that you became a Christian, how many desires were in your life that desired to kill you? Sinful things. Did you have anything in your life? Have anything that God has since worked on? You perfect now? Still growing? Who do you give credit to for that growth? How about your good works? If we are honest with ourselves, we know that even in our highest good works, we still sin. Why is that? Because it's still us. And this mortal flesh has yet to put on immortality. We still fail all the time. Why is it that the Holy Spirit is essentially necessary for the Christian walk? Because we are not capable of doing this on our own. When Christ says to take up his cross, take up our cross and follow him, deny ourselves, these things are not natural for us. We want to focus to ourselves. We want to follow Christ only in so much as it benefits us. In fact, there are many people who looking at salvation and looking at the responsibility of evangelism actually try to evangelize people this way. Follow Jesus because it will be advantageous for you. Yet that's not the primary message of the gospel. How is it that the apostles preached the gospel? There is coming a day when God will judge the world in righteousness. He's given assurance of this by raising Christ Jesus from the dead. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he is commanding all people everywhere to repent because every person will be pulled from the graves on that day. That is a remarkably different message than follow Jesus because your life is unhappy and he will make it better. You see the pride of uh, appealing to the pride of man in preaching that. You don't see the apostles preaching that way. You don't see that anywhere in scripture. You don't see them saying, hey, here's, you know, 80% of your life's doing pretty good, but Jesus can help that last 20%. It's not doing so great. No. That 80% is not doing good. And if you don't know that, go to the law of God and see how unholy you actually are. Do not just be thankful that God has not made you sinful in this area, in that area, that area, but see sinfulness everywhere, even if you can't see it. Because God has shown us who we are. We are regenerated. We are renewed by the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who brought life and wrought life in our salvation is the same Spirit of God who indwells the Christian from the moment of their birth to the moment of their death and renews them and sanctifies them. Christ Jesus, verse 6, says that he poured out the Holy Spirit on us richly. 
God has poured out his Holy Spirit in us richly. Not just enough to get by. No. You say, well, what, what is the limit then? There isn't one. There is no limit to the life that God works in us. It's kind of like asking what's the limit of his grace. There isn't one. There's not a limit to his power. There's not a limit to his rulership. There's not a limit to any of these things. So then why aren't Christians perfect? Because Christians haven't died yet. We cannot maintain holiness in fallen bodies. This, as 1 Corinthians 15 reminded us, this mortal must put on immortality. This sinful body must be made glorified in order to maintain such things. We will not be indwelled with the Holy Spirit in the eternal state. We will have been risen to the newness of life perfectly without a sin nature. Say, what does that feel like? I have no idea. I know I look forward to it. When the work of the Holy Spirit is complete. I know I look forward to it when the outcome of our salvation is fully revealed. It is an eternal hope. And here, Paul connects it, the work of the Holy Spirit to that exactly. It is by, let's see, as he says here, by the washing and regeneration of the renewal of the Holy Spirit, verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might also become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. People speak of eternal life as though it is just merely living in heaven. And forget that eternal life is actually something that begins at salvation. And it is done through the Holy Spirit, maintained, sealed. How many things have we studied about the Holy Spirit with regards to these things? We are given a down payment, the earnest money, if you will, of what hope belongs to us in the Holy Spirit. I said this when we were back in Ephesians. Do you want to know what heaven is like? Look at what the Holy Spirit is doing. He has shown as a piece of that eternal hope. He guides us towards those things that are actually life-giving with no death mixed in at all. The death is what we get to add in. That's, that's us. No matter how far we've traversed, no matter how far we've grown, still we add our death into it, don't we? Every day. Every day. So what are we to do? Throw up our hands and say, ah, the Holy Spirit wants to bring about good works. I just let him. I just will not focus on it. No, no, no. The desire of the Christian is to do good things because they want to see the glory of God show up in their life. Not because this perfects them for that day. No, but because God has given us new desires. We are given a desire to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not because we're capable of it, but because we want to. And that's the life that he has promised us. What does he say in verse 8? The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things, Paul says to Titus, so that those who believe in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable even to the point of worthlessness. As for the person who stirs up division... After warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. 
knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and self-condemned. What is the focus of the church? It is not to iron out every difference in the law. It is not to come here and determine who is right about this matter and that matter and that. No. You will lose sight of your own sinfulness if you do this. As a church, as a pastor, as a Christian. Let us keep our sins ever before us that the grace of Christ might be even higher than that. To quote Luther, who we were studying this week in church history, for every time you look at a sin of yours, look a hundred times to the cross of Christ. Don't hide your sins, but certainly do not hide from Christ. Let your sins be great, he says. Let the grace of Christ be greater still. Otherwise, we make a false religion out of this. Otherwise, we come to the gospel of Christ as a manner in which we can say, this validates how I would live. And many such people are doing this these days. God made me this way, therefore all is well with anything that I do. Nonsense. Nonsense. God made man upright. And there's not a one of us who has been born since Adam and Eve that have been born upright. We are born fallen. Sinful. And as Christians, even in our new birth, which is signified by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, even in our new birth, we are still born with two natures. Sin nature and a new nature that is being worked in us. And so we devote ourselves to the new nature. Why? Because it is pleasing to God and to us. We follow the Lord in what he expressly states. And then when something comes up that is not expressly stated, we don't sit around and look for fleeces to give us the answer. We don't sit around and, and hope that, you know, maybe I'll just spin a globe and put my finger down and then God will tell me to go to Tajikistan. No. We follow the Lord in what he says. We follow his desires. And then, let me quote a wise theologian, then you do whatever you want. Because if you are following the Lord and your desires are being culled by Scripture and by the direction of the Holy Spirit, you don't have to sit here and wonder, do I take this job promotion or that? You will follow the Lord wherever he takes you. Let us be focused on these good works. Paul is about to die. Peter as well is about to die. And before he does, he writes a letter to the church broadly, speaking of the same things. Let's listen to that. Or Simon. Sorry. The first letter of Peter. His name was Shimon, or Simon, when he first became a follower of Jesus, and he was part of the inner circle of the twelve disciples. When he made his confession that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus changed his name to Kephas, which is Aramaic for rock, which was later translated into Greek as Petros or Peter. Jesus promised that he would become a leader among the apostles to guide the Messianic community in Jerusalem through its earliest years. And that's what happened. Remember the early chapters of the book of Acts. 
Eventually, Peter was called to carry the good news of Jesus beyond the borders of Israel, however, and this letter was written decades into that mission in the wider Roman world. We discover at the conclusion of this letter that Peter is in Rome, which he calls Babylon, and we learn that while Peter commissioned the letter, it was actually composed by a man named Silvanus, who was a co-worker of Peter. This was a circular letter sent to multiple church communities in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. And Peter learned that these mostly non-Jewish Christians were persecuted. They were facing hostility and harassment from their Greek and Roman neighbors. And so Peter wrote to encourage them in the midst of their suffering. And this helps explain the letter's design and its main themes. It opens with a greeting, and then it moves into a poetic song of praise to God, which introduces the key themes that are explored in the main body of the letter, where he first affirms the new family identity of these persecuted Christians, which will help them see their suffering as a way to bear witness to Jesus. And this has a way of focusing their future hopes on the return of Jesus. Let's dive in. You'll just see how all the pieces work together. So Peter opens by greeting these churches as the chosen people of God who are exiled around the world. Now Peter makes clear throughout the letter that these Christians he's writing to are Gentiles, but here he describes them with phrases from the Old Testament that describe how God chose the people of Israel, the family of Abraham, who was himself an exile and wanderer. This is a key strategy that Peter repeats through the whole letter. He wants these suffering non-Jewish Christians to see that through Jesus they now belong to the family of Abraham. And so they're wandering exiles just like him, misunderstood, they're mistreated, and they're looking for their true home in the promised land. Peter continues this idea in the opening psalm. He praises God for causing people to be born again into a living hope through Jesus' resurrection and the power of the Spirit. God's inviting all people into a new family centered around Jesus, a family that has a new identity as God's beloved children and who have a new hope of a world reborn by God's love when Jesus returns as King. And for people who have this hope, suffering and persecution is actually a strange gift because it burns away false hopes and distractions like a purifying fire, and it reminds us of our true home and hope. And so paradoxically, life's hardships actually deepen our faith. They make it more genuine. From here, Peter's going to move on into the body of the letter, but he's going to explore all of these ideas in greater depth. So he first develops the theme about the new family identity of God's people. He takes even more memorable Old Testament images about the family of Israel, and then he applies them to these Gentile Christians. So like the Israelites who left Egypt, they too are to gird up their loins and leave behind their former way of life on the way to a new future. So they are the holy people of God now who are journeying through the wilderness. They are the people of the new Exodus who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who's the ultimate Passover land. They are the people of the new covenant who have God's word buried deep inside them, restoring their hearts and renewing their minds. They are the new temple built on the foundation of Jesus himself, and they're the new kingdom of priests who are serving God as his representatives to the nations. Now by applying all of these amazing images to these persecuted Gentile Christians, Peter is placing their suffering within a brand new story. And this leads into the next section. Their persecution can actually help bring clarity to their mission in the world, to bear witness to God's mercy among the nations. So Peter first encourages them to submit to Roman rule, even if it's oppressive. Yes, he acknowledges, their persecution, their suffering is unjust. But violent resistance solves nothing, not to mention that it betrays the teachings of Jesus who loved his enemies instead of killing them. 
Peter then specifically highlights the very difficult situation that Christian slaves and wives faced when they lived in Roman households where the patriarch did not follow Jesus. The problem was that it was expected that everyone in the household would submit to and worship the patriarch's gods. And so Peter's aware that giving allegiance to Jesus will generate suspicion. So Peter says it's true. All Christians, including Roman wives and slaves, have been fully liberated by Jesus. But they are to demonstrate that freedom, not through rebellion, but by resisting evil the same way Jesus did, through showing love and generosity to your enemies. And in homes where the husband is also a Christian, it's a different story. They are to treat their wives totally different from their Roman neighbors, regarding them as equals before God who are worthy of honor and respect. And Peter's hopeful that this imitation of Jesus' love and upside-down kingdom will give power to their words as they bear witness to God's mercy and show people the beautiful truth about the way of Jesus. But Peter's also a realist. He knows that Christians will continue to be persecuted, and so he reminds them of their future vindication. He recalls how Jesus himself was unfairly persecuted and murdered by corrupt human powers, but in reality, he was dying for the sins of his enemies. And afterward, he was vindicated and given resurrection life by the Spirit. And now Jesus is exalted as king over all human and spiritual powers. Then Peter shows how baptism points to the vindication of Jesus' followers. So like Noah, they've been saved through the waters, not as a magic ritual, but as a sacred symbol that shows their change of heart, their desire to be joined to Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And so now, even if they are murdered for following Jesus, their hope is in future vindication and exaltation alongside their king. Which leads Peter into the final movement. He recalls Jesus' words that his disciples should consider it an honor and joy to be persecuted just like he was. Peter then calls on church leaders to care for these suffering Christians and to show the same kind of servant leadership that Jesus did to his followers. And finally, Peter reminds these Christians about the real enemy that they are facing. This hostility isn't simply cultural or even political. There are dark forces of spiritual evil at work inspiring hatred and violence, and they are to resist this evil by staying faithful to Jesus and his teachings, and by anticipating his return and ultimate victory over such evil. Peter concludes with a prayer for divine strength, and he sends a greeting from the church in Rome, which he calls Babylon. Now this is cool. Peter's adopting here the tradition of the Old Testament prophets, for whom the name Babylon became an archetype for any and every corrupt nation. And so Rome has become the new Babylon, and its empire is where God's people are now exiled from their true home in the renewed creation. Peter's first letter is a powerful reminder of Christian hope in the midst of suffering. God's people have been a misunderstood minority from the very beginning, and they should expect to face hostility because they've chosen to live under the rule of a different king, Jesus. However, persecution can become a strange gift to the church because it offers a chance to show others the surprising generosity and love of Jesus, which is fueled by the hope of his return. And that's what 1 Peter is all about. How many of you are familiar with 1 Peter? One of my favorite books in the Bible, by the way. Uh, it was the first one I ever preached through uh, back 10 years, 11 years, goodness gracious, 11 and a half years ago. It was the first book I ever preached through because it addresses the reality of Christians living in a world that is not ultimately their home. It is the home that God has given us. He has caused us to be the Christians that are tasked with living in the first part of the 21st century, and thus we belong here for a time. 
but to define ourselves solely by where we live uh, makes ourselves not to understand the Christian life at all. In fact, it would make our lives far easier if this was our home because, well, we eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die, right? Here we are expressed by Peter now. We've been steeped in the messages of Paul and of James. But here with Peter, we are given a whole new perspective on things. Again, Peter is about to die. He's going to be, according to one story, crucified upside down, as a couple of the uh, different um, apostles were. Uh, crucifixion was a typical thing to be done with extreme, um, uh, with extreme leaders in certain uh, places. Um, but the reality is that the sufferings by living as a Christian in this world do not show us that we are wrong. In fact, it shows us quite the opposite. When we look back at the person of Christ, when we look back at his ministry, what are we to expect and conclude but that suffering is actually a part of following the way of the cross? By the very basic definition of following Christ, we are following somebody who suffered unto death. As Christ promised, if they hate me first, they're going to hate you. In fact, anyone who follows the Lord will suffer in this world one way or another. Which means if this world is super comfortable for Christians, something's wrong. Something is off. Or something is at a temporary stay of execution. The standard expression towards the church is not for the church to be in charge of this world. It is that the world is in charge here and it hates the church. That is the way of it. With any normative, that is the way it's going to continue to bear itself out. And so for Christians who are living in a world that's not their home, them following the Lord may indeed, and in some circumstances certainly indeed, bring suffering into their lives. In case we are unaware, it's about to get a whole lot harder to be a Christian in our society. All right? Anyone who is not paying attention to that is just sleeping. It's about to become a lot harder, and prosperity preachers will continually diminish in their preaching. Because you can only have the heresy of prosperity gospel during times of prosperity. You cannot have it during times of grave suffering for following Christ. There were no prosperity gospels in the days of the persecution in Rome. No prosperity preachers who are going around saying, you follow Christ, everything will get better in your life. Your dog will be healthy, your wife will be happy, your, your job will go better, you'll get raises, you'll get promotions. None of that stuff. Not because God is not interested in our joy in this world, but because he is more and uh, finally interested in us living in this world as we ought. So Peter, from the very opening of this book, expresses to the church uh, you can see this in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In his introduction to all of this, he says, To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, that is like all of Asia Minor, as he actually pictures up there. Uh, huge, huge section of, uh, of the world. He says, We are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. There, again, the entire Trinity is involved in what is going on in these Christians' lives. The Father 
in his foreknowledge has called them. The Spirit is sanctifying, holying them. We don't have a word in English that uses holy as the ground for that, but in Greek it's the same word. Sanctifying them, sanctus, comes from the Latin. Sanctification of the Spirit, making them holy is what that means. And obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. In other words, the, the amount of pictures he is including that express the reality of what the priests, the temple, and the people of Israel all experience, they too were exiles. They too were an elect nation. They too have been dispersed throughout the world. The altar itself was sprinkled with the blood of God. This, this expression has all sorts of ties into the Old Testament. Why? Because what God is doing is not entirely new. God does not forget about the first several thousand years of salvation's history. No, he is the same God that defeated the Amalekites and the Midianites. He is the same God who will now, through the suffering of his people, defeat Rome, Babylon. I said something a couple weeks ago that I said, you know, a lot of Christians today don't seem to realize we are living in the newest iteration of Babylon. And it hasn't fully revealed itself yet, but it will very soon. And I'm not saying that because the end of the world is at hand. No, the church has been in many Babylons before. Many. And when we look at that and say, oh my goodness, that means history is going to end. No, it doesn't. It just means we get to see with clarity what this world is like better than generations that have gone before us. Because there are sometimes cultures that grow up under the auspices of Christian-y stuff. But the reality is that always crumbles because that's not how the gospel works. It doesn't work through culture like that. The gospel affects culture, but culture does not preach the gospel. People do. And how this is expressed is that this is something that the Spirit of God, the Spirit does not indwell cultures, the Spirit indwells Christians. And he brings about their sanctification so that they will be obedient to Jesus Christ. That sanctification shows up in their lives in so many different ways and expresses to them so many different things that God has been promising since the foundation of the world. Let's read verses 3 through 9 to just get the connection to his conclusion about the Spirit here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, there he speaks of our lives, Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. There's purpose behind this. That the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now get this connection because here he'll reference the Spirit multiple times. Concerning this salvation, 
So this is no new thing that has entered into the world. This is a salvation that was foretold by the Jewish prophets. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, Gentiles, the grace that was to belong to you, they searched and they inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, the prophets were just as confused. There was multiple places where in their prophecies from the Lord, they expressed that the coming king would suffer. But they would also have prophecies were showing that the coming king would be glorified. And it was confusing because on one hand, we have a suffering servant, Isaiah 53. On the other hand, we have a glorious king, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 65. Isaiah 55. We have two almost completely diametrically opposed aspects about the coming one that the prophets were thoroughly confused about. In fact, there were even theories that there must be two messiahs because the two cannot live in one person. How can a suffering servant who is led away like a silent lamb to the slaughter also be a victorious and glorious king? There must be two messiahs, some theorized. And Peter here references that confusion. They were searching these prophets and inquiring carefully, trying to understand. Look at the way he says that in verse 11. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. These two things do not go together in the way our minds think. They don't. Suffering leads to debasement. Glory leads to comforts, don't they? Shouldn't it be that the comforted ones are also the ones that have a temporal glory? And the suffering ones are the ones that should expect nothing but to be debased further and further? Peter will draw out this picture from almost every relationship in life throughout the book of 1 Peter. You become a Christian, and you're married to an unbeliever. That's going to lead to a great deal of suffering. It will. Whether through mistreatment, especially for women who came to salvation, and their husbands in the Roman Empire were not Christians. He includes specific encouragement and instructions to them in chapter 3, verses 1-6. through six but also for husbands that are married to unbelieving wives. He includes the last verse there. Living with them gently. Why do we have such things? Why do we have it when masters are Christians, but their slaves are not? Slaves are Christians, but their masters are not. Children who are Christians, but their parents aren't. Parents who are Christian, but their children aren't. All manner of relationships in this world are going to be affected by this. Everything. And he says, in, in the expression of these things, it's going to lead to more and more sufferings. What about in the normal path of life, you are a Christian and your government isn't? What's our job? What's our relationship? Don't forget, Peter here is about to be crucified upside down. Within the next, like, two years by anyone's estimate. There in Rome, in the city he already is. 
So what do we understand? Not that we know of. No, that was more typical for Paul because he was a Roman citizen. I do not believe Peter was, at least to my knowledge. So house arrest would not be a typical thing. Oh, in fact, I know he wasn't because Roman citizens couldn't be crucified. There you go. Yeah. I was about to say, I know theoretically he wasn't, but no, uh, according to tradition, he was not a Roman citizen. And so house arrest wouldn't have been an option. So which is why we see um, him when he is imprisoned, he's in prison uh, straight up and then crucified. Was it his choice upside down? According to the story, yes. That was not a typical thing. It was not a typical thing to crucify people upside down. But no. he didn't want to be crucified as Christ. It was not the story goes that he, uh, he requested as such because he didn't count himself worthy to be yeah, uh, killed in the same way as the Savior. Yeah. Suffering, then, is seen not as a bug of the Christian life, but actually a feature of it. And something that shows us the glories of God. It means that sufferings have a role in our lives, not to be avoided, but to be thanked for. That we become grateful for suffering. Not that we just sit and avoid it. No, no, no. But it brings a special blessing into the life of the Christian. Turn, if you will, to chapter 4. About five more minutes here. Chapter 4, he's just come off of expressing all these relationships in life that you may suffer at the hand of, including other Christians, by the way. He expresses all these relationships and says we have been given this gift of God's grace and how it affects our lives, affects us in certain ways. He says in verse 7, This is an interesting thing to read in retrospect, 1950 years later. The end of all things is at hand. Verse 7. Therefore, what? Avoid all the suffering that you possibly can and live as a hermit somewhere in the mountains. No. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled. Be sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. In other words, you're going to wrong each other a thousand ways. Love one another. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Again, here the expression is Christian-to-Christian relationships. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, speak as one who speaks oracles to God. Oracles of God, excuse me. Whoever serves, serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And then begins the final section. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial that has come upon you to test you. Do not be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. But instead, what is the response to suffering? What does he say in verse 13? Rejoice. Find joy from it. Why? Insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. This is a gift. Now, for those who were causing the suffering of Christ, it looked like they were in control for a while, didn't it? They thought they were. Pilate said, don't you realize I have the authority to set you free? 
Just speak a word in your defense and I will set you free. And what does Jesus say? You have no authority unless it was given to you. None. Zero. I gave you the authority to put me on the cross. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering that you that they, uh, excuse me, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Verse 14, if you were insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. When these times of persecution and suffering come your way, the spirit of God will take on a unique role in your life. That allows you to see, perceive, and appreciate the glory of God in a way unique to that suffering. But don't let any of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, or an evildoer, as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? He says, you think that suffering in this life for the subsequent glory is bad? Try to find glory in this life with subsequent suffering. That's the way of death. That's what the world has. It looks like it's in charge for a time, doesn't it? It looks sometimes with its persecutions of the church throughout various times in history that the world itself is in charge. And that that is just the way that it'll always be. And if it wasn't for the hope beyond the grave for the Christian, that truly would be the story of history. The strongest are the ones that are in charge, and that's the end of the story. And yet, the sufferings of Christ show us that while all of the Roman Empire's authority, and while all of the Sanhedrin, at least the majority of them, were on the favor of having Christ suffer and die, God worked salvation even through that. And we should expect that nothing less will happen in our life. When sufferings come our way, to be thankful for them. Not because they are fun, but because God is surely saving us and showing us his glory in the midst of them. We should never lose sight of how difficult salvation is. The righteous are scarcely saved. What will be the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner? It is why he quotes that in verse 18. If the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become the outcome of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let me add a caveat and take no credit for that good because it is the spirit of God who is working it in your hearts. Become humble and grateful. These are the virtues of the Christian life. Not power, not influence, not strength, not offense, but a careful and quiet heart as God continues to work on his people and surely delivers them the salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. Until that time, the world will be in charge. And honoring the king and doing good to all people may bring about great suffering in our life. Let us entrust our souls to a faithful creator and do good. Let's pray as we close out. Our Father, we're very grateful for these references. We're thankful that the Spirit of God continues to work in us despite our many misgivings and chosen directions. We pray, Father, for the strength not only to 
to see and perceive the work that you are doing in this world, but that you would give us perspective to become grateful for what you are doing even in our own hearts. Teach us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that whether we are suffering or whether we are at ease, we may give you the glory that is due your name, taking none of it to ourselves. We are grateful for what you have done. We are grateful for Christ. We pray that even if the days grow lighter or darker, we become more and more grateful for what he is doing in our lives and in our homes and in our church. We pray that you find us faithful no matter the cost. In your son's name, amen.